Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God that engages us this morning, especially our gospel reading from Luke, might not sound so gospely today. You might read it or hear it, and instead of feeling comfort and assurance, you feel fear. So let's break down our text and dive right in. This is the beginning there. It's in your bulletin. It'll appear upon the screen behind me as well. Or if you've got your Bibles, now's a beautiful time to break them out to chapter 13 of the Gospel of Luke as we go through this today. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And again from Luke, we see that Jesus has but one purpose, one place, one destination that he is getting to, and that is Jerusalem. He is headed to the cross, and along the way, he does not stop teaching or preaching or doing miracles, but he is continuing to do the work his Father has sent him to do. And in our text today, someone asks him a question. Are only a few people going to be saved? Now, one interesting commentary that I came across stated that the question seems to reflect a debate that existed among Jews at the time of Jesus in which these two very popular rabbis were of differing opinion. One declaring that all Jews would be saved, and another that said only a few Jews, because as we'll get to at the end of our text, some had been sent away. Not all of them were still in that central area. Yet it seems that Jesus would not be drawn into that existing debate. Instead, in response to this question that was either one of impertinence or maybe curiosity, Jesus answers this man's question of others' salvation in a way that makes each one of us question our own salvation. Interestingly enough, this question was also asked by the disciples in Matthew chapter 19, where we see Jesus use familiar language like we come across today. Jesus said in Matthew that it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to be saved. When the disciples heard that, their question wasn't, <laughs> will a few be saved? It was even less hopeful. It was, how can anyone be saved? Because if a rich person, a person who is clearly blessed by God, will have trouble, what about those who have nothing or those who struggle? If only a few Jews will be saved, then how can anyone be saved? In Matthew, Jesus responds very calmly, very clearly, and let them know, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Luke, his response was, as you can see, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. When the owner closes the door, you'll be knocking and pleading. But he will say, I don't know you. You'll say, we ate, we drank, you taught. He will say, I don't know you or where you come from away from me. If the way is narrow, it seems it will take effort and purpose to enter into it. And a narrow door also implies that we can't bring with us unnecessary things. Therefore, we must strive, make every effort, struggle to lay these things aside and go in through the narrow door. How sad it would be to not lay down something of this world to instead hold on to it and choose not to enter into the narrow door. Now the Greek word here for make every effort, strive, this idea here of a struggle or a prize fight. Strive even to agony as they did for the games in the Olympics. 
Actually, the word is agonizomai, used here to allude to agony. Jesus is saying there is a difference between a mere wishing and striving to enter. A casual wish isn't enough to be saved because there are too many obstacles along the way. Our Lord says it's necessary to make every effort to strive with agony because there are many obstacles in the way. Let's start with an easy one. The world is an obstacle. What example would you like me to use today? Maybe a better question is, what example haven't you heard in regard to the world being obstacle? So let's keep going. The devil is an obstacle. Yes, the devil is real. And he and his fallen angels are hard at work to make sure there are obstacles in your way. Some obstacles of pain, loss, suffering, others of pleasure, distraction, misdirection. There is a reason the devil is compared to a prowling lion seeking someone to devour, for he is working to keep you from Jesus. For if the devil is not saved, you best believe he does not wish for you to be either. Probably the worst obstacle, our own flesh. Pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency, greed. The thinking that God is not needed. The thinking that grace is cheap. It's a life insurance policy, not a way of life. Flesh is tired, flesh is lazy. Flesh does not desire discipline, but ease. And flesh clings to that ever so dangerous state of mind. I'll get to it later, and tomorrow is another day. But as you can see in the text, the door will go from narrow to a time when the door will be shut. Our Lord implies that there are limits to the divine mercy that there will be those who will not be able to enter in. Many will seek to enter, wish to enter, but they will not be able to. For when the door is open, it is open, but when it is closed, it is closed. And the excuses will come. We ate, we drank in your presence, you taught in our streets. In other words, I knew something of Jesus. I heard something of his teaching. I got confirmed. I went to a Christian school. I came... When my kids sang, I came on Easter. I came when I wasn't busy. The excuses continue. And Jesus says, away. I do not know you or where you are from. It would seem that Jesus is warning that it wasn't enough to know something of him, to be slightly associated with him, but that he too must know and recognize you. Now, of course, Jesus knows all people in a sense. He knows who they are and knows of their way of life, yet it would seem that there are some who do not desire to know and be known in the sense of relationship, in the sense of faith. Jesus seems to be stressing relationship. And by calling them evildoers, even the way that you live. So to go back to the beginning of this sermon, it is understandable that this could be read or this could be heard and the response would be fear. For hell is real. And there are those, even some we know, who will approach the door and it will be shut. 
For anyone who does not have faith in Jesus Christ, the response to a shut door, an eternity apart from Christ, yes, the response should be fear. And the text is clear on that. I'm not sure how much more clarification would help. A sense of urgency would help because the door is still open now, but it will close. And then it will be too late. Now to be clear, strive, make every effort to enter through the narrow door isn't a call to save yourself by good works. Good works, giving, serving, aren't the right door. One may strive to enter all your life long, but if it isn't at the right door, it really doesn't make any difference. Jesus himself is the door, the gate. I think it's foolish for us as believers to read this text and not also read this from John 10. So I'll read it to you. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. And the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves, robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I'll say it again. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal, kill, destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when the wolf comes, he abandons the sheep, runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand, carrying nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep, and I must bring them also. And they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock, one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father, Jesus says. Jesus is the one who opens the door. Jesus himself is the door, the gate. Jesus is the one who will give his life so that you may have life and enter into eternal life with him. Jesus is the one you know, and you better believe Jesus is the one who knows you. Yes, you are very much known by your Jesus. What does it say in Matthew? Only that (laughs) he knows your hair on your head. Now, I know what you're thinking, Dave Hopkirk. That's not very many. But I'm always amazed to read that God cares about the smallest of birds 
and even keeps track of the hairs on our head. God is demonstrating that he cares and knows about every little thing in your life. Look at Jeremiah. He knows your beginning. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Next slide, my man, Mark. Look at this from Jeremiah. He knows your beginning. From the beginning of each life, God was there. Knows everything about each person that he has fearfully and wonderfully made, including you. He brought you into this world, gave you gifts that are unique to you, spoke at your baptism and said, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. Look at Exodus 33. He knows your name. God says twice in this Exodus chapter that he knows Moses by name. He does not see his people as a mass of believers without a name or a face. He has promised to leave the 99 and go after the one. He knows each and every one of us by name. Look at this from 1 John. He knows your heart. What a sobering thought that God knows your heart, including the innate wickedness of the heart. But I love what he says here in 1 John, that he is greater than our heart. That when we hold sin in our hearts, causing our fellowship with him to be broken, ha, 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 he is greater. He does not give up or cast you aside. He knows and instills in you, creates in you a pure and faithful heart, renews your spirit. Look at this from 1 Peter. He knows your, in, your worries, your anxieties, encourages you to rest in the fact that he knows what you need and will take care of you. Has gone so far as to become one of us, to carry what we could not, to love us. Look here, he knows our weaknesses. We ought to remind ourselves of this verse constantly because it reminds us that God knows just how weak you are. And knowing your weakness, he doesn't make you wallow in it. Instead, he comes alongside you, encourages you, has promised that even in your weakness, he will bring power and will give you grace to handle when it comes to our own weakness. It is cause for us to rest in the strength of the God who knows us. Look at these three beautiful verses here. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that speak about God's direction of our way, how we go. To Job, he affirmed this truth. In the midst of suffering, God knows the way and you will come out as gold. From the psalmist, he has promises you that when you walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, the darkest of life, it is he that is with you guiding you, protecting you, comforting you. Here in Proverbs 16, he smiles. No, go back, man. I'm not ready. <laughs> he smiles at you. Says, I know you're making your plans, but I will establish your steps. Through every fire, through every death, every step, he is with you, bringing you to him. He knows your days. 
No one is assured of how many days they get. And that's a sobering thought when we look at the idea of a narrow door today. But a believer looks at the narrow door and hears only gospel. Because we belong to Jesus. We do. And those who believe, who have Christ, need never fear. For perfect love <laughs> drives away fear. Your Lord has told you that you are loved and you are known. So do not fear, but have hope. Now, I know some of you know your Bible and you're saying, hold on, I know I'm known. I have hope, I have faith. But I'm pretty sure that I've read several times in the Bible to fear the Lord. In fact, I hear it all the time. Isn't there that one proverb that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? I'm pretty sure God wants me to be afraid. The reality is the fear of the Lord is not like the fear of spiders, which are the most dangerous, fearsome creature in all of existence. <laughs> My first amen. You got to love that. Fear of the Lord is being aware of the awesomeness, the power of God, that God is so much greater than you and I, that we are not in control of God, nor do we manipulate God, but in awe and wonder of our relationship Him, we can use the word fear there. In fact, it's important to cultivate that type of fear of the Lord so we don't treat God like He's just our buddy or some subject that we study or He's too far gone from us. In the original sense of the word, God is someone who, who inspires awe into our hearts, awesomeness, even terror, like we saw in our Hebrews 12, right? They were afraid of God then. But now we have Christ Jesus. We are not in a relationship with someone to be afraid of, but someone who knows everything about us and welcomes us to them. And the reality is, if you're not cultivating that type of fear of the Lord, the one that the Bible calls us to, which is the beginning of knowledge, when you don't have that, then you will begin to be fearful of everything, afraid of everything because you're not in a right relationship with God. So then everything else, politics, war, economics, job status, illnesses, relationship, all those things will terrify us, maybe even paralyze us, because we are not in a right relationship with God. We forget to trust Him, forget that we are known by Him, that He is greater than all of the things of this world, greater than all of the things of Satan, greater than all of the things of our flesh. Fear of the Lord doesn't make you afraid of God or let you stay afraid as a person. It sets you free to be fully alive like he promised you in John 10, to have life to the full, abundantly. When we remember that God is God and we are not, then we are in right relationship with him because as awesome and majestic and powerful as he is, he loves us and gives each one of us grace. And it is only then, no matter how narrow the door, no matter what the way, the path looks like, that we can face all the fearful aspects of life and face them with confidence because the heavenly kingdom was given to us. The door opened for us by Jesus, who himself is the way, truth, and life. And I'll close with this. If we are known and understand how to fear the Lord and to cultivate that type of fear, and we have hope and we have faith, then why do we strive? Why do we make every effort? 
we make every effort, we strive, because if the door is still open, then there is work to do. We strive because we have faith and we have hope, but we also have love. Love for our Lord and love for our neighbors, even the ones from the east, the west, the north, the south. Those that are considered the least or last, we have love for them. And if we will recognize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you better believe we are going to recognize the ones that we love now and the ones that we know now. So we will strive for their sake. And we will strive and make every effort for those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. Our Lord has given his life for us. And we will surrender ours. We will give him our hearts to purify. We will give him our hands so that we can love as he has loved us. And we will raise our voices and we will sing. And we will make every effort for the one who has given everything for us. Amen.